This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design invests in building and teaching designers using the best tools for the job. I asked product designer Jessica Durkin what she's learned about design since working at Facebook. So since working at Facebook, I definitely learned about the importance of communication in design. So I think as designers, we have the ability to paint a vision of what a better future could look like, but the best idea will never succeed if you can't communicate with others as to why it's important. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at provisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Buffer is looking for an Android developer. It's a remote position, so you can work from anywhere. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts and when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. And if you're looking for more jobs, then become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. This episode is dedicated to John Daniel. Rest in peace. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I've got big news to share. We're finally having our first live event. Revision Path Live with Facebook Design is taking place here in Atlanta on November 7th at 6.30 p.m. We're going to have some product designers from Facebook, including former guests Tori Hargrove and Carla Cole. Now, this is a special event, so if you want to attend, send us an email at revisionpathlive, that's all one word, at fb.com, and we'll take it from there. Again, that's revisionpathlive at fb.com. I'll also put the email down in the show notes. Now let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. You know, automation is huge right now, and the great thing about MailChimp is how they use automations to help make your email marketing efforts more powerful. So you can set up automations to reward the most active people on your list. You can send order notifications and follow up on purchases. And now you can even do retargeting. You know how you'll browse something on Amazon or some website and then you magically see an ad for it on another website for the thing that you just looked at? MailChimp can help you do retargeting like that. So sign up at MailChimp.com today for a free account and give it a try. MailChimp. Send better email. Your online identity really begins with your domain name. You know, no matter what kind of artist or designer or developer you are, Showcasing your passion online is super important. Hover makes the process of finding a domain super easy with hundreds of domain extensions, personalized email, and award-winning customer service. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. SiteGround's hosting services are crafted for professional, business, or enterprise projects. They let you build better, faster, safer websites more easily, and they offer multiple options that your websites can grow into. All of SiteGround's plans have managed WordPress hosting, 
They include staging and Git integration, so that's great for developers out there. Get started today by visiting SiteGround.com forward slash revision path so you can get 60% off on all your hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. Now for this week's interview. We're talking to design researcher and educator Omari Souza. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hey, everybody. My name is Omari Souza. I am a graphic designer and recent graduate of Kent State University. I'll be starting as a first-year faculty member at LaRoche College in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My main focus as a designer happens to be design research methodologies, and I'm really interested in finding ways that graphic design could be utilized to make social and innovative changes. Well, congratulations on uh, starting at LaRoche. What will you be teaching there? I'll be teaching three classes my first semester, and thank you for the congratulations. (laughs) The first class, well, one of the classes I'll be teaching is a methodology, a research and methodologies course that I'll be teaching with a colleague of mine, Andy Schwarmbeck. This class, we'll be introducing undergraduate students to pretty much the beginning stages of design research, different methods they can use, how design research can be utilized, things of that nature. I'll also be teaching type two to, I believe, undergraduate juniors, as well as a foundations class to freshmen and sophomores. Nice. And this is not your first time being a college instructor. Is that right? No, it's my first time being a full-time instructor. Okay. In graduate school, I actually taught both at Kent State University as a part of my scholarship, as well as uh, Tri-C, which is uh, Cuyahoga County Community College. Now, what was your time like at Kent State? We, we actually have had someone, and you may know him, a professor at Kent State, Larry King. Yeah. Uh, we had him on the show, I think it was like episode 162. Yeah, episode 162. And it sounds like Kent State actually has a really great design program. Can you kind of talk about what your time was like there? Yeah, Kent State is awesome. And Larry is also awesome, too. Larry is actually one of my thesis advisors, and um, I took a couple classes with him uh, while being there. Kent was really good, and I found Kent at a really interesting time in my life. I went to the Cleveland Institute of Art as an undergraduate student, and I had a really tough time there just due to issues of diversity. I grew up in New York City, and while in New York, I was exposed to several different types of cultures, and I never really felt alienated. And once I got to Cleveland Institute of Art, it was really different. A lot of the students that I met came from central or southern Ohio. And um, for them, I was the very first person of color that they met. So there were a lot of different dynamics that um, I had to deal with. For instance, my roommate thought Malcolm X was a rapper. And, oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. When I graduated... And during my time there, I was able to interview at places such as Vibe Magazine, the Buffalo News, and I ultimately ended up getting a position at Case Western Reserve University, where I held two different positions, a marketing position as well as a design position for for central marketing. I quickly felt that it wasn't really what I wanted to do. Design can be something that's extremely gratifying, but very short-lived and very thankless. You can get a project, you can complete the project. Put your heart and soul into it, and it's kind of on to the next one before you mm-hmm. really relish what you did. I really wanted to go to grad school, and my undergraduate GPA wasn't really the highest. I applied directly out of undergrad and didn't get in. And somebody, one of my colleagues at Central Marketing at Case, told me to reapply and to, to meet with somebody. I ended up meeting with Ken DeSaki O'Grady, who's kind of like the Obi Wan Kenobi of design research. He and I grabbed tea. Before the end of the conversation, we met, I want to say, two weeks before application deadline. He told me to apply. 
my hope was to wait a year or wait a semester. And you told me to apply now. He said, don't even really wait. And um, I jumped into it. I followed his advice. And it was arguably the best decision I'd ever made. Mm-hmm. I felt the exposure that I got to design research really expanded what my thoughts were about design itself, far beyond simple artifact creation, which was kind of the rut that I was stuck within. The classes that I took with Ken specifically really taught me that, you know, design and design thinking specifically could be a world changing element. And it was really, really, really good for me. The people that were there, I had, I had colleagues that, and classmates that I met from China, from Iran, from Korea. I had colleagues from Goshen, Indiana, places I've just never been to, places I've never really heard of. And, and the opportunity to kind of meet with them, get advice from them, see how they view the world and then express that view through design was very interesting. And it stretched me a lot over the past two years. So if anybody asks me, I swear by Kent State, it's an awesome place to be. Yeah, it really sounds like it. And getting that exposure to design research and then finally deciding that that's what you want to go into, is that eventually what has sort of continued you with education? Yeah, it was. I feel like as an instructor, you had the opportunity to kind of, well, it was multiple things, I should say. As a designer, I felt like things were very short-lived. You'd have projects that would do the same day, projects that would do maybe a week or two down the line. And once you were done, it was kind of another project coming down the pipe that had a similar deadline. And with teaching, you not only have room to do research on topics that you're interested in, and that research is supported by the college or university that you're teaching for, but you really have the time to kind of pour into other people. And you get to see them grow, which to me is more gratifying. Like I've had classes with students that felt that for them, the experience was was was, change, was life-changing for them. Not saying that I'm a great professor, but the information that I was able to provide to them that was provided to me by other professors changed their perspective on something. And being able to see that, to me, was a bigger, bigger return on my time and investment than anything I'd done for any other commercial entity prior. And speaking of that research, that's actually how you and I kind of first got connected. You reached out to me because you were getting some interviews together for uh, research that you were doing for your thesis. Can you talk about what that thesis was about? Yes. And uh, thank you again for uh, being willing to share your time with me for the interviews. The thesis is actually, my research is called Chasing Vertical, Recognition and Diversity in the Field of Design. It's really a piece about diversity in the field of design, but more so than simply figuring out ways that we can attract African-Americans to design, it's asking the question, what other majors are attracting African-American students and why? There was a recent study, I want to say within the past two or three years, released by Georgetown University. The study was really about the income gap between African-Americans and and whites. It talked about how African-Americans happen to be heavily represented in the fields that pretty much pay less. And a lot of these fields ended up being social serving. In a lot of my discussions with a lot of people, especially when brainstorming, a lot of people assumed that African-Americans weren't attracted to creative fields due to the fact that they may not pay as highly as other majors. But the fields that African-Americans are typically applying for are majors that pay even less than, than graphic design would. Hmm. So this really interested me. When I looked further into the study, I ended up realizing that a lot of these majors were social serving fields. So majors such as health and medical administration service, community organization, public administration, sociology, criminal justice, personnel management, pre-law, legal studies, and religious studies. These were all pretty much social science and, and majors that would require you to go out and serve a community when in reality design is something that allows you to explore 
explore self, explore your own internal methods of, of expression and creativity for an employer. That's really interesting. I, I never would have considered that those would be lower paying than design. I, I feel like the narrative that ends up getting pushed forward, and certainly it's one that I heard too when I was going off to college, is that you want to major in something that's going to get you a job that's going to pay you well, that's going to be more stable. Mm-hmm. And design often ends up being looked at as something frivolous or, or as a hobby or something like that. Yeah, I think a lot of people have that perception, but designers make a decent amount. There was a uh, AIGA survey recently that was released that talked about the average salary that designers make. And I want to say it was around 60. It was around $60,000. But the average mm-hmm. uh, person graduating with an undergraduate degree in sociology with just a bachelor's degree isn't making that much. Isn't making that much mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's sort of a trade-off? Like you have to end up getting more education before you reach... I guess what could be seen as a point of financial viability regarding social science majors. Yeah. Typically they would make more money once receiving their masters or their PhD, but strictly comparing bachelor degree to a bachelor degree being at the field, graphic designers would typically make more. So for me, that's Mm -hmm. there's something else there. People are typically, if more people are going to a major that's paying them less because everybody likes to eat. Everybody likes heat in the wintertime and, <laughs> and, and, and lights at night. So if people are typically trading the financial return, there has to be a trade-off that they're looking for. And with my, my research, I began interviewing some students that I was able to get access to that actually studied within these majors. And for them, it was important for them to do something. Well, for them, I would say they all fall into three separate categories of personas. You had the enthusiastic, who's somebody who either knew somebody or took a class with somebody within a particular field. And the impression that that person left on them made them very interested within that field. So they knew from that class, from that experience, they were going to be X. You have other people that felt that they needed to be active in providing a solution. And I call those the direct exposure. So these are they needed to contextualize something that they've gone through. That was the direct exposure. So if somebody is, let's say, dealing with uh, depression or had family members who were dealing with depression or had an uncle or aunt who they felt were unjustly treated by the, the, the criminal justice system or anything of that nature, them feeling like due to their direct exposure to a particular situation, they needed to A, contextualize what happened to them and B, figure out ways that they could be more active in preventing that from happening to somebody else or assisting someone who's currently dealing with that they wanted to jump into a major that will help them do so. And then you have the indirect exposure who is somebody who's seeing things happening. It might not be happening directly to them, but new stations discussing issues in urban communities, friends and family members that are talking about particular things that are happening, them seeing civil unrest makes them feel like they need to jump into this particular major or a particular class that deals in that realm. So I found that to be a commonality. I did card sorts with with students where I handed them pieces of paper. They typically, they all pretty much just said, you know, out of salary, ability to be creative and express yourself freely, impact a community or a major that you know will lead to a position that's very diverse and inclusive. The majority of these students that I met and interviewed with from the social science majors place impact above everything else salary, fun, and creativity were at the very bottom. So a lot of these people are simply saying, you know, I don't care if I have fun in my job. 
there was work to be done. I don't care if I'm making a lot of money. There was work to be done. And realistically, if we if we look at the world, even if we look at, you know, what recently just happened in Charlottesville, there are probably a lot of people that are very scared, very terrified, and they're probably thinking to themselves, I want to have a family one day. I have cousins, I have siblings, I have friends that are all scared or worried about situations like 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 this. And what can I do to help? What can I do to, to be a change agent change agent in regards to this particular situation? And I feel like that's Based off of my research, those are things that contribute to some African-American students or a large, uh, a large number of African-American students going to social serving fields versus design. That is fascinating. And when I think of, again, the narrative behind that, it totally it makes sense. It's what you hear. It's certainly what I think is propagated throughout media when you look at television and movies and and books, even, you know, just what's covered in terms of real life current events. That tends to very much be the narrative, like going into something that will will service the community. But it's it's like you said, it's more in like the social serving way as opposed to design, which may, I guess, I don't know, maybe it's just not marketed that way or not seen that way. It, it feels like there's kind of a perception issue. It is. And I think design contributes to it. Part of my research, I actually listed priorities for students that study design as well as social science majors. And then I started surveying different colleges and their majors, not not their majors, but how they define their majors. So if you went to the website and you were looking for an overview of what this program would be teaching you, most uh, design schools that I found really simply only talk about artifact creation. So it's, hey, come to X school and learn the latest trends in design that will get you a job working with these corporations that this university or college is partnered with versus, you know, if you look at Yale University sociology program, if you look at Harvard's master's, I mean, uh, MBA in public policy dual degree program, or a lot of other colleges that aren't necessarily Ivy League, they talk specifically about how these majors will be able to put you in a position to impact. Case Western Reserve University places impact boldly on a lot of different uh, marketing material for the sociology major for their MSAS college. So before you even sit down and read everything, those are the words that are kind of sitting in your head. So if you're a student who's trying to figure out how can I help, how can I help, or what can I do that will allow me to help or empower me to make, make a difference, the way that these programs are described really, really puts design as an, at a disadvantage. Why do you think that's the case? Why do you think these design programs don't focus on the social change part of it? I think it's a number of things, some of which I can assume and, and a lot of which I don't know. I think, for one, design is something that's fairly young. It's a young major. And I, and I know Paul Rand had a lot to do with it becoming a, a field that was taken serious in terms of commercial use. But I feel that it's still learning itself. I think design in general typically tends to fail. I mean, typically tends to be absent in regards to issues, issues within African-American communities, despite the fact that they're very interested or appear to be interested in recruiting diverse populations. I know that there are a lot of organizations and colleges that are really interested in recruiting um, African-American students, but they're just silent on, on those issues. And for me, the question that I often ask people, especially when discussing recruitment or discussing, you know, issues of diversity is how can you really draw somebody in without first investing in them and allowing them to feel like you can empathize with the issues and concerns that they actually have? And if you're not connecting with those concerns, can you really be surprised if you're not attracting those students? 
That's a valid point. I mean, I know that a lot of these schools also are really expensive. And like, if you're going to be sending your child there, of course you want them to be able to have the skills that they need in order to have a job and to, you know, function in this society. But it also kind of has to mean something to them, I think, intrinsically. You know, it has to be something inside that makes them want to do it. And I mean, I've talked with design educators. I've talked with with just people that also do recruiting at, at art colleges and art schools and things. And to them, it always sort of boggles the mind why a, a black student who is interested in design would go to an HBCU over an art school. Yeah. And I tell them that the main difference is that the HBCU has kind of invested in who they are as a person culturally. It's very true. I interviewed a few design students and um, I was trying to get an idea. I was trying to do a comparison between design students and social science students, both in terms of priorities when choosing a major, how they were exposed to the particular major, in addition to how inclusive they felt the room was or the classroom setting was whenever they were studying. And the thing that I found really interesting is that neither majors felt that the classroom was diverse. Social science students felt that, you know, there were still maybe only three or four African-American students in the classroom with them when they were studying in sociology classes. But they felt that those classes were still more open to having discussions of race, while the African-American students who were studying graphic design felt that they couldn't bring race up. And if they did, it would be an awkward silence. So, Many of them even mentioned, you know, if I design something of a concern of mine in regards to my race or my person, I know that nobody's going to say anything during a critique. It's going to be a very awkward silence or the, the criticism that they gave me will be very superficial and the, the treatment of me will be different. One student told me that she felt that her presence itself, she, she felt that being in the room at times she felt could be disruptive that as soon as she walked in or gave her feedback, even if it wasn't race-related, sometimes she felt wasn't necessarily welcome. So she went through classes not participating, not speaking to students, not not doing anything, silencing herself. And um, in my thesis, mm-hmm. I draw parallels between that Jordan Peele's sunken place and the movie Get Out, where um, <laughs> because in reality she, you know, she's there, but she's really submitting her her agency to the the people within the room. So while she can see what's going on around her body, she's really not controlling the situation or she's not participating in it. So she has no real power. She's submitting it in order to not be uh, in, in order to not have the spotlight in a negative way. Ooh, you you brought it home with the sunken place. I totally understand that. And it, it makes me think of other guests that I've had on the show that have said very similar things. You know, when they've been in their design programs. They didn't feel like they could really connect with the faculty or they couldn't connect with the material in some sort of way. I I think mostly of when I talk with Ben Lindo, he is, I think, episode 129, and he talks about his time actually at the University of Philadelphia when he was getting a strategic MBA. And it's really worth listening to. Like for those that are listening, if you want to go back and listen to that episode, you should. But he really sort of talks about the struggles that he had getting through that program and what the faculty would tell them and how he was sort of juggling that along with a job. And, you know, it wasn't until he sort of sought some outside guidance actually from another black designer, from a, from Noel Mayo, who's a famous industrial designer, sought that guidance from him and tapped into that community that he was able to actually then get through the program. But it, it sucks when it feels like you've invested into the university or the program and they're not investing in you in the same way. Yeah. Wow. I can relate. My undergraduate college, Cleveland Institute of Art, was a private institution that 
I believe cost about $40,000 a year when I was going there. And it was a five-year college. When I first got there, I was one of five African-Americans and one of five African-American males. There were, there were other African-American female students. And when I graduated out of the five-year program, I was the only African-American student. There was an African-American female who graduated, African-American male student. There was an African-American female who graduated from the five-year program. And there were two additional African-American males who graduated from the four-year program. But for my major, my department, and for the five-year body in general, I was the only one. Hmm. I've had students who I've taken classes with who, and a lot of these, especially when you're doing your foundation classes, a lot of these projects are very open-ended. So some of these projects were, you know, one word assignments where you were given parameters and you were given a single word and you had to make something. And, you know, let's say if a project discussed alienation and I did a piece on how I felt alienated being the only person of color, I'd get a lot of pushback from students. Or, you know, you'd get like a a lot of microaggressions that other people didn't realize would make life very difficult for you. For example, my freshman year of college, I'm fresh out of New York. I'm in Cleveland, which is a completely different type of city. I bought the new Young Buck album at the time. So I'm, I'm recognizing I'm the only black person there. I don't know how these people feel uh, about, <laughs> about rap music. So I'm going to wake up extra early. I'm going to wake up extra early. I'm going to get to the studio space around six o'clock in the morning. And I'm just going to start working and I'm going to zone out, get my assignment done. So I'm playing this album. And as I'm playing it, students start trickling in. I'm thinking that people are going to have an issue. So I start turning the music down. And then some of the students tell me, no, it's fine. We like it. And I'm thinking, okay, this is cool. And then one of the students walks up to me and she goes, oh, man, this music is really cool, but I just can't relate to it because I've never been shot. So Hmm. while making that statement, it immediately told me what she thought about me. She was equating this music to a particular culture and the people who listen to it and relate to it as being pretty much being criminals. And the response I gave her at the time was just me being was me being flippant was, you know, yeah, me either. But I am black. So which she then realized how the statement sounded and apologized. But I had that throughout my undergraduate experience. And it was really difficult. Even my senior year working on my final project for uh, my BFA defense, I did a small a five minute short film on the difficulties of uh, the recession on, on families called Burden on a Father's Shoulder. It dealt with African-American families specifically. And um, I had students, some that they felt like I do too much black stuff. Black stuff? Too much black stuff. Did they quantify what that meant? Not necessarily. They basically just said that all of my black projects makes them feel like I'm talking down to them or makes <laughs> them feel like they don't know what it's like to be black. As it, like it, All of my projects to them feel like a declarative statement of me saying they don't know what it's like to be black. To which I responded, you don't. You know, I told him that I can empathize with somebody who's handicapped. I can empathize with, with somebody who's of an opposite gender as myself. I can empathize with somebody who's dealing with issues that are outside of my own person. But I don't know what it's like to deal with those issues because they exist beyond me. And I told him that my intentions for my pieces were more of an exploration, more of an exploration and an education piece, but not necessarily me speaking down to anybody in particular. That's interesting that they would take it that way. Like that, like that's how they would perceive it as though you're talking down to them as opposed to, cause, cause you hear so much about designers, you know, supposedly having to have a lot of empathy. Yeah. You know, hmm. 
I kind of want to talk a little bit about, you know, and you hinted at this earlier around kind of the notion of the design community as it relates to issues that impact people of color. And we spoke about this a little bit before we started recording, but, you know, one thing that you will kind of see, and I know I've seen this through Revision Path, is how design tends to be viewed as something very apolitical. Yes. When it is sort of used in some sort of way, it may be as a form of satire or derision. But even when that happens, it will often happen towards causes that do not impact people of color, particularly people of color here in the United States. Like I know we'll see, you know, design campaigns for, you know, tragedies that happen overseas and tragedies that happen in other countries. And that's understandable. But then when it comes to things that are happening right here in this country that are impacting people of color, particularly black people, there's this silence. There's kind of this radio silence from the design community in general. It's very true. It's interesting. There's a book I read and um, I referenced in my thesis called Sister Citizen, and it's written by Melissa Harris Perry. She has a quote in the book and a quote is, or she argues in the book that the act of politics is really the fight for recognition. So while people pretty much view political party or view voting as being political. It's, it's really people attempting to gain recognition. Hmm. Later in the book, she also talks about how the existence of African-Americans in this country, whether it's fighting for equal rights, fighting for the ability to be viewed as citizens, fighting for the ability to be viewed as a full human being versus two thirds of a man. It's the very existence of African-Americans in this country since we've been brought here is a political existence. And I would also argue that the decision not to recognize is also a political decision. So for me, there's no yes. such thing as apolitical. It's either you're recognizing or you're not recognizing. And I think mm-hmm. with uh, issues within the African-American community, the field of design itself does a very poor job of recognizing issues regarding minorities within this country. One thing you and I discussed um, in particular was a, a prior interview you did with Ann Barry, where she referenced in the interview that everything is designed, even protest, even protest posters, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And one thing I mentioned when you and I were discussing that was uh, a recent, you know, trip I made to Barnes and Nobles, where there was a book of photography commemorating the Women's March and specifically highlighting the protest posters and the slogans that were actually used during that time period advocating women's rights. Now, granted, I understand the the Women's March was huge, and I feel like things like that are amazing, but there are also several other movements that have been happening specifically within African-American communities in regards to police brutality, in regards to water crises in Flint, in regards to a lot of different issues in general that typically go ignored by the the field of, of design, the field of design. And it makes me upset at times because... There's no reason why it shouldn't. Somebody, you know, why it shouldn't be acknowledged. Somebody is designing posters. Somebody is designing these T-shirts. Somebody is designing the flyers that are going out. Somebody is using some level of design in order to bring attention to this cause. And, and you know, like, there was a major concert for Flint. So what today mm-hmm. Chappelle made a joke about not being able to attend in this recent Netflix special where several celebrities came out, somebody designed the tickets for that. There's so many pieces that actually go into organizing things of that nature. And these are things that are typically being ignored and not even really being, they're being ignored and not referenced, which to me, again, like makes me wonder how can you expect 
if you're not investing in communities, if you're not discussing how you can, if you're not discussing what's going on in these communities, not discussing how design is impacting these issues, you know, or how it can, or thinking about it at least, or acknowledging it at, at, at the mere bare minimum, how can you expect to really recruit more African-American students? Right. I'm even thinking, you know, I'm going back to the election. I was doing interviews with designers around that time and designers have been reaching out to me wanting to know what they could do to kind of get involved. And I feel like right around that time, this was maybe from like November to January, there was sort of this initial groundswell of designers being like, yeah, I really want to find out a way that I can do something and help out. And now it's eight or nine months later and there's nothing. I don't want to say there's nothing, but there's, there's not that same level of enthusiasm. I think if I did see any swell, it was like you mentioned, like around the women's March. Yeah. You know, we're recording this right now, um, not too long after the events that happened in Charlottesville. I would be interested to know, like, what are designers doing around that? Yeah. I mean, I've, I mean, we've seen a few magazine covers that have kind of a clever use of a, of a clan hood. But other than that, you know, what's kind of being done? Like, what are designers doing? How are they using their tools and their talents to protest white supremacy? And is that something that, because people of color aren't really that recognized in the design community, is that a charge that we need to take up now? I think so. There was a quote that I heard the other day. Somebody said, in the grand scheme of things, we're all specks of sand. But we're specks of sand to which the entire universe hinges onto. And basically that the person who, who said it was basically just trying to say that we all have the ability to make major changes, even though we're, we're really small and our efforts can really push the momentum wheel. If we, if we, if we really take the time to, I know um, for me before the, the, the situation of Charlottesville, a lot of the police brutality situation, a lot of the police brutality instances uh, hit home for me just because of where I grew up. One of my younger brothers was, babysat down the street from where Amadou Diallo was shot. And if you're unfamiliar with who Amadou Diallo is, he's the Haitian college student who was shot 19 times by police officers when pulling out his wallet. My parents bought a house in Queens and, in, you know, my sophomore year of college uh, of undergrad, Sean Bell was shot. Sean Bell was a man who was scheduled to be married or who was going to be married the following day. He was leaving his bachelor party and the limousine backed up and hit the uh, cop car behind it, which the police officers opened fire on the limousine, shooting at it 50 times, killing the man before he was to be wed and injuring some of his groomsmen. And then coming to Cleveland and realizing, you know, experiencing what it was like, officially experiencing what it was like to be other, simply because there were so, so many minorities, I knew racism existed and I knew that people talked about being treated a certain way, but I never experienced it until going to Ohio. For me, I felt that that was my my charge to then figure out how can I make a difference using my skill set. I know a project that I'm currently researching, it's pretty much just the history of perceptions and implicit biases in America and trying to showcase those through maps. There is an interesting implicit bias test. I want to say it's called the IAT test. It was done in Europe and it's also done in America. And it was really seeing where, which areas in uh, the United States happen to be the most racist. And a lot of them happen to be on the Eastern coast. They showcase it based off of, 
using reds and blues. So the deeper red you are, the more, the more biased you are against a particular race. And the more blue you are, the more neutral you happen to be. And a lot of the red states happen to be where the original colonies were in the United States. If you look at the ACLU map showing active hate crime, not active hate crimes, but active hate groups, a lot of them are centered in the same areas. The heaviest cluster of hate groups are in the same areas that are the most biased. And a lot of them happen to have very interesting histories. So Florida was a state that was found to have a super high level of bias. But Florida was also one of the last states to desegregate its schools. Maryland was another state that had a high level of implicit bias. But Maryland was also one of the last states to get rid of slavery. So like there are these interesting, and especially if you look to the Western half of the country that didn't have the same history with slavery, not saying that they didn't benefit from it, but didn't have the exact same history as a Florida or Maryland would have, they're they're a lot more neutral. So for me, I'm doing this research exploration to kind of showcase where these ideas came from, how long they've existed, and how they've manifested in different ways using maps as a historical tool. And there are a lot of things that are really interesting that if you overlay them, they all make sense. So if I overlay a map that showcases implicit bias, I overlay maps that shows clusters of active hate groups. And even if I overlay, if I go further back to the 1920s and start overlaying the maps that showcase businesses that the, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, the green books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like there are the books that were, I think they were put out by the NAACP for motorists, for black motorists that yes. were going through different states and stuff. Yeah, If yeah, you yeah. start mapping out where these businesses were, it's like it's all telling the same story. It's like pieces to the same puzzle. And I feel like it helps to contextualize. So for me, that's doing things like this happens to be my way of taking that charge. If, if other designers aren't necessarily going to focus on issues within my own community, I live within my community. I'm a member of my own community and I have these particular skill sets. So that change first has to start with me before I can hold anybody else to the fire. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I, I really would love to see more more black designers, really more designers of color in general, kind of taking up those kinds of charges. I mean, I think we've started to see some of it just in general when it comes to, to like Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And I know that there is a group out there called, I think they're called the Designers Guild for Justice, which in all disclosure, I was a part of that group. I left that group largely because the focus that they had was largely in and around San Francisco and the Bay Area. And it didn't seem like it, it kind of ventured out past that. And part of it is because that's just the, the bulk of their membership. But I could see this as, you know, opportunities where black designers could start putting their skills towards making social changes or even making, you know, kind of public statements and and things like that. Yeah, I think so. And designers have a lot of power. I mean, realistically, there's a designer that's a part of every major marketing ad and push that's, that's selling anything. You know, we are a vital part to every company's ROI, like every fortune 500 company, the iPhone itself sells because they're designers that are that are pushing and presenting a lifestyle granted in collaboration with other people as well but you know we are contributors to that so if we can help the the, the bottom line companies if we can help keep companies in the red and help them make profits or if we can introduce new people to new new apps new softwares new clothing all of these different types of things why can't we like, I think in every field that you jump into, there are ways of doing that. Like, one thing I found interesting, there was a, a fashion designer who uh, decided that she was going to make winter coats that double as uh, sleeping bags for the homeless. 
there was a fashion designer that decided that she was going to make uh, raincoats that doubled as uh, shelters. So they would turn into tents. Like these are small things that a couple years ago, I don't think anybody would be in discussion of doing. But I think if you're really interested in, in creating social change and you have a skill set, there are ways that you can use that skill set to make a change. It's just a matter of doing the research and trying to figure out how. Yeah, I think the the one that you're talking about, the woman that runs it, she uh, it's out of Detroit. I'm trying to remember her name because I actually met her. Oh, wow. She spoke at How Design Live here in Atlanta in 2015. I cannot remember her name, but I remember it was out of Detroit. And I remember those coats that you're talking about because they basically only staff people that are from in the community yeah. to help build these coats. So it sort of like creates this uh, sort of like a, this sustainable supply chain of people that can benefit from it, but they're also building it. Veronica Scott, that's her name. Just remember Veronica Scott. But yeah, those kinds of projects and things like that are ways that you can just use your design talents for more than just creating, you know, a, a shot on dribble yeah. or, or something like that. You know what I mean? The thing that's interesting is that when I interviewed the social science students, one of the questions I asked them, I presented projects like that, like things that people were working on similar to that. There was also a, uh, a design research project that Larry King worked on when he was going to Kent for grad school, in addition to a colleague of mine at La Roche, uh, Andy Schornbeck, where they were assigned with attempting to educate a largely illiterate population in Kenya, proper hygiene practices, as well as ways to diagnose and treat malaria symptoms, all through using icons, which required a ton of research on a ton of different ideations in order to, to, to reach the goal. It was, it was largely successful. I presented that to some of these social science students and I said to them, you know, if this was how design was communicated to you, do you feel like this would have interest you into this major? And the majority of them actually told me like, yeah, outside of the enthusiast, they told me that they weren't tied to a particular major. They were tied to seeing change. So if there's a way that design could be communicated as a change change agent, they would be more apt to studying design versus any other major. Hmm. That's an interesting concept, I guess. Now I think about it. Yeah. yeah I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, let's switch gears here for a moment because I know that we focused and talked a lot about your work and we have discussed a little bit kind of, I guess, about what you do as an educator. I'm curious to know, going from Case Western and attending school at Kent State, and now you're here at La Roche. Throughout all that time, what have your students really taught you? Like, how have they helped you out as a designer and a design researcher? One thing that my students helped me with is really showing, patching up some of the holes in my own game. I think a lot of time periods, when you're forced to look at somebody else's work consistently, and you're able to see the mistakes that they're making, and help them resolve it or see how they solve those problems, it helps educate you and how you would solve future problems yourself. Classes that I taught at Kent, I didn't really get an opportunity to teach anything research-based. I taught a motions graphics class, an introduction to design, and an intro to type class. So it's, it's, it was interesting to see things that I possibly struggle with or see things that I've struggled with in the past and see the solutions that students were able to come up with that I didn't think about prior. Then learning from them, adding that to my repertoire to, to improve myself. I think the thing that I've learned from them in regards to doing design research is you never really know the impact that you'll have on students, especially in regards to a particular project that you're working on. I taught an advertising class at um, an introduction to design class at Tri-C, Cuyahoga Community College. 
I partnered with Cleveland's Garden Garden Valley Neighborhood House, which was run by Jen Ridgeway. It's a it's a center that operates as a food bank, feeding about ten thousand families in a community that has high cases of new HIV AIDS, high cases of illiteracy, high cases of poverty and unemployment. Jan Ridgeway, the owner, the director of the institution, decided that she wanted to open up a restaurant to employ some of the youth in the community. Half of the money would go to them as payment. The other half would go to their uh, college funds that they would have money to go to school. I pitched doing the class, treating the class as an agency where we would do the design work for Garden Valley, but we would have to first survey the community, research, find out what you know aesthetics would, would pretty much have the greatest impact for this restaurant. And while doing so, a lot of the students from this community college were really tied to it because they came, even if they weren't, and this is a largely black community, and the students I had weren't predominantly black, but many of them came from similar financial backgrounds. So for them, they were even more dedicated to the field of design or to the project because they felt that they were helping other people that struggled the way that they struggled. And one of the students I didn't realize, especially because this was on the west side of Cleveland where I was teaching in a suburb called Parma, while uh, Garden Valley is on the east side, one of the students actually lived in Garden Valley. And while Jan Ridgeway came to the class and was pretty much giving the pitch on, on what Garden Valley does, the student broke down into tears because he remembered what it was like living in Garden Valley. He told us that, you know, when he was a child, he was living with his grandparents for, for, for a period in Garden Valley, and he was only allowed to play in front of the door. He couldn't leave the front door due to how dangerous it was. So, and, and he remembered what it was like being there and, and, the, and the suffering that people went through while there. So for him, you know, he felt supercharged to, to work on this project. And a lot of these students were students that were either taking the class as an elective or taking this class as a requirement for another major. And a lot of these students ended up contacting me at a later point in time to come to Kent to sit in one of my classes or to meet somebody to talk about admissions. Because they, they felt that if they could do this with design, this was something that they wanted to do versus what they were studying at Tri-C. Now, having worked primarily in education, you know, as a researcher and as an educator, what does it sort of mean to you personally to be a black male that is doing this? Because you're, you're pretty young. You're in your, like, early 30s, yes, right? And a lot of times when you see design educators, they are not young and not black, honestly. Yeah. What does that kind of mean to you to be able to do this at this point in your life? It means a lot. For me, I know that a lot of students that I come into contact with that aren't black, I might be the first person of color that they're seeing in this type of position. And I know that me being there changes their perception on what a black male could do or a black person in general could do, especially if I have a, a positive impact on them. I know for a lot of African-American students that I come into contact with, some students that are struggling may feel more apt to open up to me because of the fact that they feel that they can relate to me and the fact that I'm not that much older than them. At Tri-C, a lot of the students weren't necessarily the traditional students that are coming in at 17, 18. Some of those students are coming in at 26, 27. I had a student who was in his 40s. So for them, you know, me being young or me being around their age means that they can relate to me a little bit more. And for me giving back to a community outside of my research 
teaching is, a, is an awesome way of doing that. Like if I can plant the seed in the mind of a future designer that he has a responsibility to the community around him, regardless of whether or not he takes a corporate position and he decides to do pro bono work for a nonprofit or he decides to do something else that impacts the life of somebody else, that's me giving back or impacting the world in another way, even if I physically didn't do it. What piece of advice has stuck with you over the years? A professor that actually is a dean now, uh, Dean Ormond Brathwaite at Tri-C, when I was an undergrad, told me that if you were really dedicated to something and you really want to be great at it, you don't have to be the person that spends eight hours a day studying on it in order to be great. He said you should study on it, but what you need to make sure that you're doing at minimum is spending at least 15 minutes a day with it every day. 15 minutes adds up over the course of a year and then several years down the line, you're inching further and further along to what you want to do. And he gave the advice to me because time management while an undergrad was really tough. And me finding time to research all the things that I wanted to do was really tough. But he told me if I can just find 15 minutes a day, I would have absorbed enough information that I can remember and hold on to. And I can do that every day and then be a bit further of where I wanted to be. And that concept of inching the momentum a little further and further, further has, has really stuck with me. Where do you see yourself in the next, like, let's say five years? What do you, what do you think you'll be researching and working on and doing? A long-term goal of mine is to start a uh, student-run venture that partners with nonprofits in the area. I would love Larry King at Kent has, he's a creative director of uh, Glyphics, which is a student-run firm that does commercial-based work for companies in the area. I would love to do something very similar to that, but do it for social causes. I mean, I, I don't mind doing the occasional commercial piece, but I would love to do a student-run think tank on how design could be utilized to make social changes, not just for communities of colors, but communities of color, but for communities in general, communities at risk. And now I know that you're kind of just starting off at La Roche, but when you, you kind of look at the rest of the year, is there anything left that you want to accomplish? For the rest of 2017, for me right now, it's really promoting my thesis research. Uh, for me right now, it's sharing with as many people as possible, especially as many people that I know are interested in uh, diversifying their, their field of design. My hope is through the research, especially if it gets more eyes, is challenging people to consider if you're attempting to pull in this demographic. And even if it's not just black students, what can you offer them? And how do you know that you're tapping into their concerns? How can you acknowledge and recognize people from this particular demographic and how is that reflective in the program that they'll be experiencing, considering the fact that attending your institution or attending your program would be a heavy investment from any family? Well, Amari, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you, about your, your thesis work, any of that? Where can they find out about that online? You can actually find my thesis published on Ohio Link. Um, the title of the thesis is Chasing Vertical, Diversity, and Recognition in the Field of Graphic Design. Please feel free to check it out, download it, share it. I believe that link also, once you go into Ohio Link, it provides information on how to contact me. Let me know your thoughts. I'll also be on the LaRoche website as well. You can contact me there. And that's LaRoche spelled L-A-R-O-C-H-E dot E-D-U. Please feel free to contact me, especially if you're interested in doing pieces for social innovation. I'd love to brainstorm with people and find out new ways that we can collaborate. 
Sounds good. Well, Omari Souza, thank you again so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing. Really, I think, you know, everything that you've talked about here with your thesis, I find utterly fascinating. I mean, I think we could probably talk for another hour just about some of these points that you mentioned. So I hope that for people that are listening, they really get a chance to not only listen to this, but also look at your thesis and kind of pick out some greater things that they can really discuss. You know, I I think it's important the work that you're doing around not just teaching and education, but also letting students know that they can do more with their talents than just work at a company somewhere. There's a lot of big, hairy social issues out there that need attention. They need clarification. And designers are really in the best position to be the people that can make that happen. Yes, so thank you again so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. No problem it. at all, sir. Thank you for having me. Thoughts of love are And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Omari Souza and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Omari and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Facebook's designers work on creative products that are used by over 2 billion people. Their mission is to make the world more open and connected, and they use design to create prototypes, shape experiences, and ultimately solve problems as well. Learn more about Facebook Design at facebook.com forward slash design. Whether you need to sell your products, share some big news, or just tell a story, MailChimp makes it easy to create campaigns that best suit your message. Automate your marketing efforts, put your data to work, and watch the results roll in. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Every great idea deserves a great domain name, and Hover really takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domains. They offer free private domain registration, your choice of hundreds of domain extensions, and you can connect domains to your WordPress site, your Behance or your Dribbble profile, or even your LinkedIn profile. So if you're ready to get started, go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Since 2004, SiteGround has been empowering web professionals and beginners alike to build better, faster, safer websites easily without having to worry about web hosting. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path to get 60% off on all hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Mandre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please do me a huge favor. First, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, and second, leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two. It really helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings here for Design Podcast, and I'll even read your review right here on the show. Also, don't forget we're having our first live event here in Atlanta next month, November 7th, 6.30 p.m. If you want to attend, send us an email at revisionpathlive at fb.com and we'll take it from there. Don't forget, I'll put the email down in the show notes. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Visit us at yepitslunch.com for all your design, strategy, and creative consulting needs. And if you like the work that we're doing here with Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. You know, now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. 
For just $5 a month, you can get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.